All families stand or fall on how well they do forgiveness. How thoroughly they can reconcile after conflict. Sometimes families do this really well and they set a shining example to us. Some of you will know that my wife Emily is actually part German. Her maiden name was Ulrich. In the late 1940s, Emily's grandmother brought a new young man home to meet her father. It was going to be a difficult encounter. Her father had just served in the Second World War. He'd been high up in the British Army. Her suitor was a German prisoner of war who she had met on release from a local camp working the roads. Before she died, Emily's grandmother told me how nervous she was taking the man she wanted to marry home to meet her father. She expected a serious row, but she was to be wrong. What happened was beautiful. On meeting, her father walked across the room, shook the German's hand and said, you didn't want to fight any more than I did. Welcome to the family. In a family, the love is deep enough to put six years of horrendous war to one side and to put in its place strong hope for the future. Forgiveness and reconciliation bring powerful new beginnings. But sadly, alongside doing it well, sometimes families do this really badly. Sometimes they find it impossible to forgive or reconcile at all. Emily's father was the son of the inspirational couple I've just told you about. He married Emily's mother and for a long time they were very happy. But sadly things went wrong. Very wrong. By the time Emily was in her teens they had divorced in great acrimony. By the time Emily and I got married... Her parents were so hardened to one another, they couldn't even be in the same room. We couldn't invite Emily's dad to our wedding. And I know that caused great pain to Emily. And then when her father died a few years later, it was like a wound that could no longer be healed. All families stand or fall on how well they do forgiveness. How thoroughly they can reconcile after conflict. And I'm sure you know this to be true from your own family background. Our parable today is set within a family from the ancient Near East. As Jesus told this story, every single one of his listeners would have recognized and understood it. It is a parable about forgiveness and reconciliation and the importance of those two things to keep a family together. But of course, being a parable, this is a story with many different layers to it. For what family is Jesus referring to here? Is it an ordinary family, 2.4 children, and the daily wisdom that we require? Is it a story about the family of God's people, the Jews, and their need to come home? Or is it a story about all human beings everywhere and the desire of our Heavenly Father to raise us to new life and bring us in to his eternal worldwide family of people? 
Parables are clever. This one works on all three of those levels. And Jesus cleverly designed it to be like that. And I'll help, I hope we'll pick up something of those layers of meaning as we go through it. But in truth, I want to keep our exploration of this wonderful story really simple. The first thing that I think this parable shows us is that all of us are lost in some way. In my Bible, the heading above this passage is the parable of the lost son. But when you take a closer look, there are two sons in it, and they are both as lost as each other. Jesus is pointing to the fact that all human beings are lost in some way and in need of the love of God. Let's take one son at a time. We'll begin with the obvious one, the younger one. The younger son in this story is headstrong, self-important. He is a fool. He begins by making a very hurtful request. One day he goes to his father and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. In those days, the younger son got a third of his father's belongings. The older son got two thirds. But still, a third of an estate was a lot. And this inheritance was not stored up for him like money in a bank. In those days, for the father to give him his inheritance, he would have to sell off a third of his land. He would have to sell off a third of his crops and a third of his livestock. Think about that. That action would be very public. The whole surrounding community would know what had taken place. It would be a cause of shame and disgrace. The family would be ridiculed. And also that action puts the rest of the family at risk. This family is about to lose a third of its income, yet only one person is leaving it. There's going to be a shortfall for everyone else. We don't read of the mother or the sisters in the parable, but they would have been there. We don't read of the hired hands or the poor people who the estate looked after, but they would have been there as well. Many people are suddenly a lot more vulnerable and exposed to a crisis like a bad harvest because of this son's selfishness. And of course, we've said nothing yet about the personal dimension to this request. In asking for his inheritance early, the young son has effectively said to his father, you're an inconvenience to me. My life would be better if you died already. And it's difficult for us to comprehend this living in the West because we're used to children going up and, and, and moving away for university or for work. It happens all the time. I live 400 miles away from my parents. But in Israel, this never happens. Children with the lifeblood, the security of the family... As parents age, the children were the ones who would look after them and take care of their daily needs. So this son at the beginning of the story is throwing all the love of his family back in their face. He's declaring, I don't want to be a part of it anymore. Being no doubt, this request in the opening verse is an incredibly hurtful one. And in many ways, from this moment, his path is set. He would have caused so much shame and disgrace, there's no way he can stay local. So the young son heads off for a distant country. 
In other words, he, he leaves Israel, he leaves God's people, he heads out among the pagans. There's no longer any constraints on his behaviour. They've been cast off. And so the young son plunges himself into wild living. The text doesn't tell us exactly what that means, but I guess we assume luxurious food, free-flowing wine, ostentatious clothes. It's the older son who later tells us the most likely thing to have been taking place. He assumes that his brother has wasted the family living with prostitutes. And of course, this cannot possibly last. No one is free to do what they want without limit or boundary. The world simply doesn't work that way. And soon all the money is spent. To make matters worse, a famine takes hold. And as we're discovering at the moment with the Ukraine crisis, when there's a shortage of grain, prices skyrocket. So soon he is starving. Clearly his lavish spending hasn't brought him any true friends. Just hangers on who disappear as soon as the cash stops flowing. And in the end, the young son is forced to sell himself into a form of slavery and the ignominy of working with pigs, pigs being an unclean animal to the Jews. This young son has hit the pigsty. He is as low as you possibly can go. He has no friends, no food, no security. He has no way of calling on others because he's a long way from his own people and they think he's a disgrace. He has no means of getting himself out of this mess at all. He is lost. Utterly, utterly lost. Do you remember a few moments ago I said this parable works at different levels? I wonder what you see being pictured here. Clearly on the immediate level, this parable is a warning about foolish choices. As human beings, we we need family around us. We need their love and so we must respect them. We need the security of home. We need the support of others. Nobody can live a truly independent life. No one can live without reference to their neighbours. No one can keep being selfish and not experience the consequences of that. But then there is the level of God's family, the Jews. One of the big stories in the Bible is the story of exile. In the Old Testament, the Jews consistently rejected God. They ignored his word. They went against him. They thought they were better off without him. And time and time again, God called them back. He gave them warnings. He showed them his love. But they kept on with their selfish behavior, which often caused great harm to others. And so in the end, God let them be handed over to their enemies. Many Jews ended up living in foreign lands, Babylon and Persia. Indeed, by Jesus' day, the Jews were still in exile. They might have been back in Israel, but it was Israel ruled by foreigners. And the Romans made their lives a misery. So as Jesus tells this story, the Jewish listeners were longing for home. And the honest among them knew they were in that mess because they had left God the Father. And then, of course, there's the universal level to this parable, the the spiritual level. The Bible says that we've all chosen against God. We've all fallen short of his glory. We've all made 
foolish decisions. And the Bible shows us that the root of all sin is the selfishness of the human heart. We have considered ourselves more important than God, despite the fact that he gave us birth and loved us from the beginning. Nobody likes to talk about sin today, but when we look around, we see the consequences of it. Broken homes and relationships, shame and disgrace, poverty and slavery, the sense of being alone, isolated, vulnerable, the fear of death. Human foolishness and sin leads us to experience being lost. Turn away from God and our lives soon resemble a pigsty. This is reality. But hang on, you might say. Not me. I haven't done these things. I I try to live well. I I try to do all the right things. My life's good. I'm not in a pigsty. I'm not lost. Fair enough, but are you sure? I mentioned earlier that there are two brothers in this story. And the second one is just as lost as the first. Why is that? But he's living in delusion. He thinks he's done everything right. What about his motives? If we fast forward to the end of the story, we discover what the elder son is really interested in. He's so passive aggressive, isn't he? He doesn't want to be seen by others to make a scene, yet he stays outside the party knowing full well that will pain his father. He's all about impressions, this boy. He wants everybody to see him as the dutiful, hard-working son. But what he really wants is the inheritance, just as much as his brother did. What was it he said? Look, father, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed you. And you haven't even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home who's squandered all your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And his father then says something important. My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. And that's the truth. Because after selling off a third of his land at the beginning of the story to the younger son, that means that everything that is now left belongs to the older son. He already has everything that's coming to him. His father is already treating the elder son as an equal and wanting his son to enjoy that. But he can't. He can't see the wood for the trees. He can't enjoy what he already has because he's working so hard for much more. There's no joy in this son's life. No pleasure. Just labor born out of a lack of contentment and the incessant need to compare himself to others. In his own way, he is just as lost. And I wonder who Jesus was thinking about when he told the story of the eldest son. Well, actually, I don't think the original listeners were in any doubt at all. Jesus was critiquing the Pharisees, the Jewish law keepers, the religious elite of the day. You see, they thought they could end Israel's exile by just forcing everybody to keep the rules. So they would constantly distance themselves and look down on those who they deemed to be beneath their standards. Yet all the time, their judgmentalism was polluting their hearts and stopping them from doing good to those in need. 
And of course, there are many Pharisees still today, those that set themselves up as society's conscience, constantly berating the actions of others, trying to give the impression that they're better. People who always desire to fix other people rather than seeing the emptiness of their own existence. In truth, the church has been very guilty of this at times. In this story, both sons are lost. Both sons are empty. Both need the love of someone greater than themselves. And that is true for all humanity. The first step towards fulfillment for all of us is to recognize that we are lost. So all are lost. It's difficult to hear, but it's true. And if you're here today feeling lost and a bit empty in life, you're in the right place. For the next message of this parable is that all are loved. The parable is so understated, but it's so beautiful. Despite the great hurt caused by his departure, the father still deeply loves his son. That love has never wavered. Indeed, it was love that gave him the inheritance in the first place rather than a clip round the ear like he deserved. But every day since his departure, the father has looked down that road longing for his son, yearning that today would be the day that he would return. And day after day, he must have been disappointed until one day he saw on the horizon the outline that he would never mistake. He may have been shriveled by famine and shriveled by shame, but the father knew the person of his son anywhere. And his heart burst within him when he saw him. Have you ever seen an important person run? You ever seen the queen run? Ever seen a school head teacher run or a politician? Ever seen your parents run? Important people do not run. It's not seen to be dignified. But this father does. He hurtles down the road, wraps his arms around his son. He's so impassioned, he smothers the son in kisses. He, he prevents him from getting the words of his apology out. He then reclothes him in the best robe, puts a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. He sets a banquet for him. And all these actions are designed to communicate something, something stunning. Son, you may have hurt me. You may have made serious mistakes, but you're home now. You're not a slave anymore. You're a son. My son. And I love you. The father doesn't care that all the neighbours think this boy is a disgrace and should be cast out. The father will never give up his son. And the words in verse 24 speak so clearly. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You know, the closest I have ever seen to this is the love that Emily's mother had for her eldest son. He was a drug addict. Despite the fact that he broke her heart so many times, stole from her, threatened her, always went back into drugs and crime. Every time he came home, she welcomed him. 
told him she loved me. Human families are capable of forgiveness and reconciliation if we try. But of course, this parable is about much deeper levels of forgiveness than that. In Jesus, God was offering an invitation to exiled Israel. You can come home. You made terrible mistakes in the past, but follow my son and you'll come home. I still love you. I never stopped loving you. And the same message comes to us. It doesn't matter what mistakes we've made. It doesn't matter how many times we've let God down. He still loves us. He wants us to come home. But notice this. The father shows his love to the elder son as well. He wasn't just prepared to run down the road. He was prepared to leave the party in full swing. And he comes out to the elder son while he's making his passive aggressive protest. And he pleads with him to come in. You see, this father is not going to rest until his whole family is brought back together again. Until his love gives birth to love in the heart of his elder son as well. You know, Jesus often critiqued the judgmental attitude of the Pharisees, but he did it because he loved them. He wanted them to open their eyes, open their hearts. He wanted to see that they were loved as they were. They don't have to try and keep earning his affection through rule keeping. And today, Jesus loves even the most judgmental of Christians in the hope that we'll change, that we'll welcome our new brothers and sisters that God is bringing into the family, no matter who they are. You see, if we open our hearts to God's love for us, we'll discover that mercy triumphs over judgment. Forgiveness is more important than honor. Reconciliation trumps purity every time. All are lost, but all are loved. We need to receive the love of God for ourselves and pass it on to others. There's one final thing to say about this parable. All are lost, all are loved, all face a choice. The great turning point comes when the younger son found himself in the pigsty. He could have given up, he could have accepted his fate, he could have been too proud to own up to his mistakes and rather died among the pigs, but he didn't. He made the courageous choice to go home. He knew he'd gone wrong. He knew he'd sinned against his father and God as well. He knew he had no entitlement anymore. May well be that he would return home and be a servant rather than a son from now on. But he knew despite all of that, being with his father was the best choice available to him. And the young son made that choice. And he benefited greatly. But did you notice that the older son also faced a choice? His father comes out of the party and invites him in. Pleads with him to celebrate the return of his brother. He faces a choice. Is he going to forgo his pride? Welcome his brother. Is he going to soften his heart? Allow himself to be loved as well? And what's really clever about this story is we don't know what he did. We're left hanging. 
Did he enter the party or not? In the Bible it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's this story in one verse. All are lost. All are loved. All face a choice. In this story, the father gained a son. In the gospel, God gave up a son so he could gain millions more. Will we choose to turn round and say sorry and return home to God? Will we choose to soften our hearts and receive from him? And if we've done that already, will we as Christians choose to welcome our new brothers and sisters that God is bringing in and party with them? Will we allow God's love to lead us to be forgiving in our families, always striving for reconciliation over personal vindication? This is the challenge and the beauty of this story. This is the challenge and beauty of being family. This is the challenge and the beauty of the gospel. All are lost. All are loved. All face a choice. Please choose to go home to God today.